Discover a new educational and interactive podcast, Stories for Kids by Lingo Kids. Our episodes are packed with fun activities. Right, Elliot? Oh, yes! We went shape hunting around the block, and we found spheres and cubes on the street. That was great fun. Join Stories for Kids, the Lingo Kids podcast, inspiring you to learn while having fun. Listen to Stories for Kids on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to Noble Blood, a production of iHeartRadio and Grim and Mild from Aaron Mankey. Listener discretion is advised. It was September 3rd, 1758, just as it was crossing over into the early morning hours of September 4th. The King of Portugal was riding in a carriage down a dark back road returning from the outskirts of Lisbon, back towards the tents of Ajuda where court had been set up. King José, often anglicized to Joseph I, was a man fond of heavy powdered wigs that reached down to his back and wearing brocade clothing that allowed him to stand out in a crowd. But this night he was traveling incognito. His carriage was unmarked and none of his footmen wore palace livery, and they were taking a particularly dark and sparsely traveled road. Because on this night, the king was returning from a rendezvous with his mistress, his very married mistress, Teresa. Suddenly, his carriage jolted to a stop. A horse whinnied, but then there was silence. Just as the king was readying himself to ask the driver what was going on, a shot rang out through the night. Then another shot, and the king pulled the curtains of the carriage open to reveal two highwaymen before a third shot pierced the silence, and the king screamed. The bullet had hit him in his side, in his arm, and another shot had wounded the driver. Without taking anything, the highwaymen rode off. King José survived the bullet wound, but that night would have deadly consequences nonetheless. We don't know if those highwaymen were an assassination attempt or whether they were just two petty thieves who happened to come across the wrong carriage. But King José's prime minister would use that evening to wipe out the Portuguese nobility in an elaborate conspiracy that would cause the nation to fall into a decades-long reign of terror and paranoia. Ralph Waldo Emerson apocryphally said, When you strike at the king, you must kill him. But I think more people are familiar with a quote from the character Omar Little from television's The Wire, who said succinctly, When you come at the king, you best not miss. I'm Dana Schwartz, and this is Noble Blood. The story of the Tavares family's downfall actually begins with an earthquake one of the most significant earthquakes ever to hit Portugal. The 1755 Lisbon earthquake hit on a Saturday morning. The sky up until then had been obscenely blue, the type of clear blue that only comes in early fall, when the sunlight knows exactly how to hit the ocean and reflect onto the city. It was All Saints Day, November 1st, and though it had been unseasonably warm, there were still candles lit all around the city, 
in churches and in homes. At 9.35 in the morning, there was a low rumble, and then the city was torn in half. It had just been a gentle shaking for about a minute, but then the shaking became violent. For five full minutes, the earth shook with an earthquake that seismologists estimate had a magnitude of 8.4. A fissure 15 feet wide emerged in the city center. The aftermath was chaos. Every major church in Lisbon had collapsed, killing the worshippers inside. In small buildings constructed close together, the Portuguese population panicked. Those who weren't immediately trapped under the collapsing rubble of their homes rushed out into the street. Many people ran to the flat expanse of the shoreline, where at least there was no rubble falling from the sky. A few hundred people crowded onto a dock to watch the city finish shaking, but the disaster wasn't over yet. The sea pulled back, revealing the skeletons of shipwrecks that had been lost in the bay. And then the tsunami became visible, curling over the horizon. From up the Tagus River came a wave that reached a height of 18 feet, turning over boats and carrying away with it everything and everyone in its path. The dock, crowded with people, sank and disappeared in silence. The fires destroyed what was left of the city. Candles and cooking fires knocked over by the shaking quickly engulfed flammable wooden houses, and then the flames leapt from house to house, leveling entire neighborhoods. Between the earthquake and the subsequent tsunami and fires, more than 12,000 people died in Lisbon alone, over 10% of the population. And that's a conservative estimate. Some write that the number might have been as high as 30,000 souls. Lisbon became a shell of a city, broken buildings, and people gutted by flood and fire. In the royal palace in the suburbs of Lisbon, the royal family huddled together in fear. The king, José, huddled with his wife, Mariana Victoria, and held his three daughters close. All of their cheeks were wet with tears. When at last the shaking stopped and it became clear that they all had survived, the king pulled himself up on shaking legs and looked to one of his ministers, Sebastião José e Carvalho e Melo. Later, Carvalho would become the Marquis de Pombal, but that's the title most history texts refer to him by. So for clarity, that's what we'll call him this whole time. The king was still ashen-faced when he found his minister, impossibly poised, impossibly standing. What do we do? The king asked through pale lips. Your majesty, Pombal replied, let us bury the dead and help the living. From that moment, Pombal became the central authoritarian power in Portugal. He handled the aftermath of the earthquake with decisive and comprehensive action rebuilding the city and disbanding the groups of looters who were stealing possessions from the dead in the streets. On a scientific level, Pombal's leadership was invaluable. He distributed questionnaires to the citizens of Portugal about the duration and damage of the quake that they experienced, 
and those records are still available. One of the first seismology reports of its kind in history. King José was not a leader who liked to lead. He was the type of leader who preferred to lounge with his family or his mistresses in nice, well-appointed rooms while other people took care of the boring matters of running a nation. Fortunately for him, Pombal was more than willing to step in. Born to a lowly country gentleman, Pombal worked his way up to the upper echelons of Portuguese society, but he never dropped his intrinsic resentment of the noble families, the people who were born into power and looked down on him for his low birth. How could he not resent them? It was obvious the nobles hated him. When he married the niece of a prominent official, her family could barely contain their disappointment at her social falling. But it wasn't just the nobles. The Jesuits in Portugal, too, were a threat to him and his political ambitions. Prominent Jesuit priests like Father Gabriel Malagrida were going around town after the earthquake implying that it was the consequence of God's disfavor with the direction of the country. Malagrida didn't outwardly say it was God punishing the kings and by extension Pombal's leadership, but he didn't have to. It was implied. And the Jesuits continued to be a thorn in Pombal's side. He suspected them for blocking an earlier marriage match he wanted, and they blocked his motion to grant privileges to Jews in Portugal if they helped with the rebuilding efforts. And that's to say nothing of what they were doing down in Brazil, making expansion more difficult by organizing and converting natives. The earthquake was the moment Pombal cemented his control over King José, but he wouldn't have complete domination over Portugal until a few years later, when he saw an opportunity and knew exactly how to exploit it. After the earthquake in Lisbon, King José suffered from paranoia and claustrophobia. He refused to remain inside his palace, and so court was moved to a tent city on the outskirts of Lisbon, where King José wouldn't have nightmares of rocks collapsing in on him while he slept. It was on his way back to his royal tent, after a visit with his mistress, that King José ran into the two would-be assassins that held up his carriage. King José was shot in the arm and shoulder, and his driver was badly wounded, but both survived and made it back to court bloodied and terrified. How had this assassination attempt happened? The carriage was unmarked from the outside, with no indications that it contained the king. He had been driving on a dark back road, and more importantly, nobody knew where he was. Well, almost nobody knew where he was. The king's mistress had known where he was, didn't she? They had planned their rendezvous in advance, and the mistress, Teresa de Tavora, was married to a man named Louis Bernardo, heir to the Tavora family. Who else could have organized the assassination attempt but the powerful Tavora family, the elite group of nobles who hated Pombal and knew that the only way to get rid of him was to get rid of the king who loved and trusted him. Before word of the would-be assassination had even been made public, Pombal sprang into action. He opened an investigation and swiftly arrested two men who allegedly had been the ones who had tried to kill the king. The two men were hanged before anyone could ask any more questions. But who had hired them? By December, 
Pambal put together a special court to investigate whether the assassination had been under the orders of the Tavara family. Officers arrested the entire Tavara family. The Marquise, his wife Lenore, their sons, and several grandchildren. And they also arrested the Jesuit, Gabriel Malagrida, who was a close friend of the family and Leonor's personal confessor. Pombal additionally came for the Duke of Avira. King José only had daughters, and for a while, people believed that the Duke of Avira was going to be the next in line to take the throne, until the king had decreed that his daughter Maria would be next in line. The Tavora plot was surely an attempt to make the Duke king. Pombal's court was granted special dispensation to use torture to find out. And, lo and behold, under torture, the Duke and two Tavara servants confessed to the entire plot. The servants would later retract their statements, but it was too late. The entire Tavara family was guilty, and Pombal would make sure that everyone in Portugal knew it. For organizing an attempt to kill the king, the court sentenced seven nobles to death. The Marquis and his wife, their sons and two son-in-laws, and the Duke of Aviro, their would-be usurper. Three servants were also sentenced, and all ten were killed on a single massive stage erected in Lisbon. The scaffold was 18 feet high so that everyone would be sure to get a good view. The king himself was in the audience that afternoon, and all other Portuguese nobles were required to attend so that the fate of the Tavoras would be a lesson to them. First to die was the Marchioness, Lenora. She was led up the scaffold by a rope around her neck with her hands tied behind her back. Because she was a woman, she was permitted a quick death, sitting in a chair and an executioner slicing off her head. Her 21-year-old son came next. He was tied to a cross, for his arms and legs were broken with iron clubs. He was finally strangled to death before his corpse was flattened upon a wheel. The same fate befell his brother and his brother-in-laws and three servants, until all of their bodies were broken and bloodied on their own individual wheels on the scaffold. The Tavora Patriarch was bound on a St. Andrew's cross and beaten with an iron rod before he was stabbed through the chest. The Duke of Aviro was similarly tortured, beaten until his arms, thighs, and calves were all broken, and then beaten on the chest until he was dead. Each one of the ten Tavora conspirators was forced to watch all of the deaths of those who preceded him. When it was finally over and the blood dripped beneath the scaffolding, all of the bodies were burned at the stake, and the entire scaffolding then was set on fire. The flames of all of it and the greasy black smoke coughed into the sky for hours until only ash was left. The ash they swept into the river. But public execution wasn't enough punishment for the Tavaras. Pombal banned their family crest and had their palaces razed to the ground stone by stone. Salt was sprinkled on the earth so that nothing could grow there ever again. 
Plaques were erected in stone, forbidding anything to be built upon the cursed ground that had belonged to traitors. Pombal had wanted to go further, had wanted to execute more of the Tavara women and children as well. But King Jose's wife and daughter intervened, and so instead the Tavara women and children were all just banished and imprisoned to various convents. Among the imprisoned was the king's former mistress, Teresa. She lived out the rest of her life in a convent. The king protected her enough so that she was granted a pension and was permitted to receive visitors in her cell. They say that for the rest of her life, whenever the king's barge went by and the nuns and servants would rush to the windows to catch a glimpse of him, Teresa would break down weeping. Pombal also implicated the Jesuits in the Tavara plot. He couldn't outright accuse them of treason, but he had nine prominent Jesuits imprisoned at the infamous Uncaria fort, including Father Malagrida. The Jesuits were among 50 prominent members of Portuguese society that Pombal had imprisoned under increasingly thin pretenses through the jurisdiction of the Tribunal of High Treason. The tribunal did not disband after the mass execution of the Tavaras. It continued on, locking up nobles for perceived slights and possible disloyalties, for the wrong whisper of a piece of gossip at a cafe overheard in Lisbon. All we know from what it was like to be imprisoned in the fort, of the isolation and the misery, is from a marquis who wrote an account of his imprisonment using ink he made by scraping paint off the woodwork on his jail cell and dissolving it in vinegar that came with his meals. In isolation, Gabriela Malagrida's devotion turned to fanaticism, turned to madness. He raved, speaking to himself and claiming that saints and God himself were talking to him. As a member of the clergy, he was above secular law enforcement, and so a special inquisition presided over his arrest and trial. Conveniently enough, the Grand Inquisitor happened to be Pombal's brother. The charges were lengthy and elaborate. Malagrida was accused of sacrilegious utterances, hypocrisy, imposture, and more. When Malagrida was forced to answer for his crimes during the Inquisition, the old man, then 73 years old, was so disoriented and mad that he couldn't respond to the questions. One of the judges, a Dominican priest, quietly remarked that these proceedings weren't right, that they shouldn't be doing this to a man who clearly wasn't in his right mind. It was strongly suggested that that Dominican priest relocate to an overseas bishop position. Before Malagrida was executed, the reading of his charges took two hours. At the request of the Inquisition that no blood be shed, he was strangled to death and then burnt at the stake. His ashes were scattered to the wind. Pombal would complete his final revenge against the Jesuits when he expelled them all from Portugal on September 3rd, the anniversary of the ill-fated assassination attempt that ignited it all. For 19 years, Pombal would rule Portugal as an Enlightenment-era despot, an authoritarian ruler who imprisoned all who challenged him, while fancying himself a modern and benevolent ruler for a new era. 
But his power would only last as long as the king did. When King José finally died in 1771, his daughter Maria I took power as queen. Maria had no problem with the Jesuits and liked the nobles. She reopened the Tavara case and vindicated almost everyone involved. Those who still survived in prison or convents were released. As for Pombal, she took no real punitive action against him for what really, in effect, had been an act of treason. Maybe she thought he had been acting on her father's orders, or maybe she just took pity on a man who, by then himself, was in his 70s. Pombal was stripped of his position and banished from Lisbon. In fact, Maria insisted that her father's former prime minister remain more than 20 miles away from her at all times, in what some might consider to be history's first restraining order. Now, nearly 300 years later, it's impossible to know the truth of the case. Whether there had been an elaborate conspiracy on the part of the Tavaras to kill the king, or whether the king, riding in an unmarked carriage on a dark road, just happened to be set upon by highwaymen. There's a lot of evidence for that. Obviously, there's no real proof that the Tavaras were guilty. None of them fled town after the king survived the gunshots, which, you know, they might have wanted to do if they had organized it. And the only proof that led to their execution were confessions under torture. But I will say this. If the Tavaras had tried to take down Pombal via the king, can you really blame them? But you know what they say. When you come at the king, you best not miss. Hi, I'm Michael Rappaport. And I'm Kibi Rappaport. And together we're hosting Rappaport's, Rappaport's Reality Podcast. Podcast. We have a passion for reality TV, and we're inviting you into our living room. We're talking tea, we're dissecting the drama, and we're giving praise to the single greatest form of entertainment on television today. That is right. Reality TV is the greatest form of entertainment on television today. Here are some examples of what you'll hear from us on Rappaport's Reality Podcast. This is where we discuss all things reality TV, all things popular culture. And a little bit of Rappaport's reality, the reality of bit. us. We're a figuring bit. out. And if we had been recording these last four or five days, Ooh. it, it would have been, Ooh, a, been the podcast juicy. would have taken a, a, a left turn. Listen to Rappaport's reality with me, Kibi Rappaport. And me, Michael Rappaport, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcast. More Than a Movie is back with season two of the award-winning film podcast, and this time with a lot more movies. I'm your host, Alex Fumero, and each week I'm going to talk to the people behind some of my favorite movies. From The Godfather, Andy Garcia. He has the smarts of Vito, the temper of Sonny, the warmth of Fredo, and the coldness of Michael. To the OG spy kid, Alexa Penavega. You had Carlo Gugino, who's the coolest mom ever. You had Antonio, who's handsome, amazing, charismatic. And then Carmen and Juni. I felt like a lot of other kids felt like this could be me. To the legend behind La Bamba, Lou Diamond Phillips. When I walked in, I didn't think I had a shot at Richie because John Stamos's picture was already up on the wall. Every episode will feature interviews with the biggest actors, directors, writers, and producers behind your favorite films and tap into the history of Latinos in film. Listen to More Than a Movie as part of the My Cultura Podcast Network, available on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. 
There's still a plaque, if you go to Lisbon, written in stone at the place where the Duke of Aveiro's palace once stood. The letters are hard to make out, and of course it's in Portuguese, but you can see it alongside a tiny side street called the Alley of the Salted Earth. The plaque reads, In this place were put to the ground and salted, the houses of José Mascarenhas, stripped of the honors of Duke of Aveiro and others, convicted by sentence proclaimed in the High Court on the 12th of January, 1759, put to justice as one of the leaders of the most barbarous upheavals that, on the night of the 3rd of September, 1758, was committed against the most royal and sacred person of the King Joseph I. In this infamous land, nothing may be built for all time. The plaque wasn't exactly heated. Google Earth is an amazing thing. If you look up the Alley of the Salted Earth, Beco de Chao Salgado, you'll find that something has been built there. Pombal's revenge wasn't entirely carried out. Now, at that corner of an alley, stands, who would have guessed, a Starbucks. Noble Blood is a production of iHeartRadio and Grim and Mild from Aaron Mankey. The show is written and hosted by Dana Schwartz and produced by Aaron Mankey, Matt Frederick, Alex Williams, and Trevor Young. Noble Blood is on social media at Noble Blood Tales, and you can learn more about the show over at NobleBloodTales.com. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. More Than a Movie is back with Season 2. I'm your host, Alex Fumero. And each week, I'm going to talk to the people behind your favorite movies. From The Godfather, Andy Garcia. He has the smarts of Vito, the temper of Sonny, the warmth of Fredo, and the coldness of Michael. To the legend behind La Bamba, Lou Diamond Phillips. When I walked in, I didn't think I had a shot at Richie. Because John Stamos's picture was already up on the wall. Listen to More Than a Movie on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.